0: Um, thank you for having me again. <laughs> um, it's good to be with, here with you. Um, since uh, we are doing um, having our communion Sunday today, um, I wanted us to have a little opportunity to uh, meditate and reflect on um, the Lord's Supper uh, uh, to get together today. Um, and uh, so, um, our scripture reading is going to come from First Corinthians, chapter eleven. And uh, we'll be reading from 17 to 34. I'm going to be reading from um, the ESV English Standard Version. Uh, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner would be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. This is the Word of God. So communion, uh, or Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper. <laughs> you know, we've got many names, uh, uh, depending on uh, the tradition that we are in. It's, it's one of the central practices that we do as Christians. Um, you might even say that this is what sets us apart um, and uh, makes us different from other people because nobody else, no other community, um, eats bread that is given with the words, this is the body of Christ. or uh, no, And nobody else drinks wine or grape juice, depending upon, again upon your tradition, that gives, that's given out with the words, this is the blood of Christ. Only Christians do this. Um, and uh, so some churches have communion every week, others have it once a month, um, but every church that follows Christ celebrates communion on some kind of a regular basis. and um, Now, this is one of the key passages that teaches us about the central practice of Christian faith, and parts of it get quoted um, at communion um, quite a lot. And so, if we grew up in the church, this is very familiar to us, uh, right? Um, And uh, uh, and you know what happens with familiarity sometimes? Um, Obscures familiarity, obscures the meaning, um, especially if it's and a religious familiarity. Uh, if you've been doing something in a rote, religious way for a long time, you can fall into just doing this as a habit, it's a tradition, it's something holy that you're supposed to do. Um, and it doesn't really give us an opportunity to consider what it means to us um, so that we can be impacted by it and be changed as a result of it. Um, so we want to do a, try to a little bit of uh, unpacking of what the communion really means to us and And, um, you know, if we look at it, it's very simple. It's bread and wine. uh, But the meaning goes much deeper, and it requires a constant unpacking on our behalf, uh, on our part. Um, It requires a constant meditating. So we learn from this passage not only about the Lord's table, but also about what it means for us to be church. Meditating on this passage can start us on a journey, hopefully, uh, of being transformed into a heavenly community of the resurrected Jesus. So, let's look at this together. First of all, um, we want to look at the rich and the poor at the table. Because here's apparently what's going on at Corinth. Um, in those days, church di- churches didn't have their own set-apart building for worship. Right? Um, instead, churches met in people's homes. Some of the wealthier Christians um, owned large homes where they housed not only their families but also their servants. They u- usually operated businesses out of their homes, so it needed to be a little bit bigger um, and uh, When the church got together for worship, they gathered in some of these homes um, and the space was the, the meeting space was usually the central courtyard um, back then that 's how uh, church uh, Uh, Homes were usually built. And um, many of them could hold a small crowd, uh, maybe 60 or 70, or even if it's a a large home, then maybe 100. And it looks like this is where the the big group of worship service was being held uh, in many of the churches. But, of course, this is a house, so there's more private places. You know, there's more private rooms in the house, like bedrooms, dining rooms. There's a living room that's kind of smaller uh, for special guests and kitchen. And uh, here's the problem that Paul was addressing. You might have noticed that Paul was kind of upset in this passage. Uh, When the Christian church got together for the Lord's Supper, the master of the house invited some people into the dining room for a feast, but not other people. Some people were in, other people were out. So it's like trying to get into a club, not that any of you know anything about that, but um, you know, there there are beautiful people, there's well off people, uh there's the you know, the it people of the day, um, people that arrive in fancy cars and they get ushered in, right? The, the velvet rope comes off and then they, they, get, uh, uh, they get the special treatment, but the ordinary riffraff, um, they would get held back behind the rope, uh, velvet rope and the big bouncers would come in and uh, would shield the front door from the, the, the likes of us. Um, and this is kind of what's happening in the, in the church in Corinth. Who gets invited inside? It's the friends, you know, the, the equals of the masters of the house. In other words, they're more the wealthier people right? The, the, the ones who run the same social circles. Who are the ones that are being left out? It's the poor. It's the servants. In the private dining room, there was plenty of food and wine, but in the courtyard, there was only the bread and a, a cup of wine. So the situation wasn't that there was chaos, at the, at the table, you know, sort of like a free-for-all, as some people have interpreted this passage. And the problem wasn't that this was some sort of a soup kitchen, and some people were coming in and eating up all of the food and not leaving any for other people. Rather, the problem was classism. The problem was that the rich were being included, and the poor were being excluded. So those who were excluded were going hungry, while those who were included were getting full and even drunk because they were eating and drinking too much. So we in the 21st century America uh, might look at this and say, well, of course, this is wrong. Of course, you shouldn't discriminate, you know, because we we, uh, think that we uh, believe in the equality of everyone. But in the Corinthian society back then, this was normal when there was a festival or special occasion, the rich folks invited fellow members of the community for a meal in their homes. But the servants and the poor didn't get to enjoy what the rich did. They got the leftovers. And even at the same table, and we find this even in the book of James, right? The privileged guests get the special seats, and they're get they the ones that get served first, and they get the bigger portions and the better portions than the poor. And Everyone took this, thing, this kind of situation for granted because class was such a big part of how things were getting done. Uh, so when Christians got together to celebrate communion, they basically brought in how things were getting done in the world into the Christian life. So Paul's stern words might come as a bit of a shock to the people. Uh, he says things like, do you despise the church of God? And uh, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Why so harsh? Especially when this is how the culture is in Corinth. Because this division between the rich and the poor in the church, even at the communion table, struck at the heart, at the very heart of the gospel message. That's why Paul uses language like you are not recognizing or acknowledging or believing the body and the blood of Christ. In other words, you are rejecting the gospel of Christ itself. A lot of Christians in the U.S. today think that the gospel message is basically about us as individuals getting forgiveness from God and then you know, waiting until we get to heaven. And the sinner who believes that Jesus died for him on the cross as a payment for sin receives forgiveness from God and is welcomed into God's presence as his child. And that's, of course, completely right. But it's only half right. The other half of the gospel message is that Jesus saves us to a new life in his new community. And Jesus doesn't just save us into a new relationship with God. He saves us into a new community for his new world. Reconciliation doesn't just happen with God. Reconciliation happens with our neighbors, especially those who are the most different from us. And in the new community, there's no more division between superior and inferior, who's in and who's out, and us and them. That's the stuff of the old world, says Paul. In the new world, we are all on equal footing before God because we're all sinners saved by grace and only by grace alone. That's why Paul is so upset. This special privilege given to the rich might be something that's acceptable in the Corinthian society, but not in the new society that Jesus has made. That's not what salvation is about, he says. To keep on living like how the rest of the world lives. Salvation is about living in a new community of reconciliation, justice, and mercy. Those who are last in the world, Jesus says again and again, are first in this new world. The least in the world are honored special guests in Jesus' community. All class divisions, like the ones in Corinth, have no place in the kingdom of God, especially at the Lord's table, because the table declares that Jesus gave his body and his blood to tear down these walls that separate us. Here's the second point. because, um, uh, uh, and there's uh, the, the last two points are about, are about uh, um, what, what we need to remember when we come to the table. And the so, second point is recognizing the body at the table. Uh, Paul gives two basic commands um, that the first is welcome each other. And the um, New International Version translates this as wait for each other. But the word can also mean receive or accept or welcome. Welcome whom? The church, the body of Christ. He says we ought to recognize the body of Christ, uh, the church, as uh, as we eat and drink at the communion table. And here we, we get at the heart of what it means for us to be church. The church is about welcoming each other, not just people like us. Because remember what Jesus says, if you welcome people who are your brothers and your sisters and people who are like you already, how is that any better? How are you any more righteous than, than, than what anybody else in the world does? No, the church is about welcoming those whom we used to consider strangers, even enemies. The Greek word for hospitality is Philo Xenia. It's a combination of two words, phileo, which means affection and love, for those that you have for your family, right? Uh, for your brothers, for your sisters. Um, but And then there's also xenos, which means stranger, foreigner, outside, outsiders. And these uh, strangers were usually people who were alone, who were cut off from their families and support networks, marginalized from the larger society. Uh, they might be refugees who have to flee violence or famine and found themselves in a strange land, uh, and one of the chief marks of the church in Paul's mind was hospitality. Hospitality wasn't something optional that we hand off to the hospitality community. Because, you know, we got Martha Stewart among us who, you know, that's their gift. So, we're going to kind of outsource it uh, to the experts. Uh, but rather, it's, it's uh, what we, as a, as a community, how, how it's how we are to be set apart. Um, accepting as our own those who are outsiders, the poor and the needy, is a mark of the church. Church at its heart has to do with transformed social relationships, equality, and common life. Christine Paul uh, wrote a, a, a wonderful book called Making Room, Recovering Hospitality as a Christian Tradition. And she said, we, like the early church, find ourselves in a fragmented and multicultural society that longs for relationships, identity, and meaning. Our mobile and self-oriented society is characterized by disturbing levels of loneliness, alienation, and estrangement in a culture that appears at times to be overtly hostile to life itself. Those who reject violence and embrace life bear powerful witness. In other words, What is God's healing word to our fragmented and lonely world? It's the church. The community of the future. Again, Christine Paul says, hospitality becomes for the Christian community a way of being a sacrament of God's love in this world. For the Corinthians, this meant that the rich would have to welcome the poor and stop discriminating amongst themselves. Um, It doesn't matter if somebody is a CEO of a multinational corporation and the other person is a janitor. It doesn't matter if one person has six or seven-figure salary and the other person is on a government assistance. When we come to Jesus, we come as somebody who owes everything to Jesus, every one of us, and everybody is at the same level at the foot of the cross, a new society, a foreshadowing of the new world. So when our world changes at this most basic level, then the change flows out and it starts to affect our world, right? The world around us. What Christians did in those early days of the uh, early centuries of the church laid groundwork for what came later. Um, They would go on and uh, they would develop doctrine of universal human rights, and they would work at abolition of slavery. They would pursue uh, equal rights and uh, justice. Because where real change begins to take place at the table in our hearts and in our relationship with the Lord and with each other in the church, uh, right, with the people right in front of you, then it starts to flow out into the rest of the world. Now, of course, we need you know, just government policies and programs. But in God's kingdom, you first have to deal with our, your own heart and your personal relationships, and your neighborhood. Because without it, there won't be any changes, not really. You are just moving furniture around on the Titanic. If we want to see change in the world, then we need to have change in our relationship with God and with others. This is the heart of any ministry or any community transformation efforts or anything else that we good that we might do in this world. We come face-to-face with this basic gospel truth at the communion table, and that changes us. Um, we have a long way to go. Uh, I think we many churches in U.S. Uh, we uh, we we are used to doing church as a, as a, as consumers, you know. Uh, as and um, we, we go you can go to church. Many uh, U.S. Christians go to church to get our spiritual consumeristic needs met, and and uh, we don't necessarily um, attend to hospitality and uh, to reconciliation because the church oftentimes for us exists to meet our spiritual needs like Amazon exists to meet our need for material stuff. Not a place where we can grow to learn in extending true hospitality to the stranger. And that's what Paul means for us to recognize the body of Christ. It's to recognize the church, the body of Christ, the new society. Um, recognizing that through the, through the church is being built from People who come from all kinds of walks and stations in life, when we come together at the table, we are one before the Lord because of what Jesus has done. For 11 years, um, I served as a founding pastor of an inner city church plant in Philadelphia. And so when we began, we used to have a meal together after every service. and uh, we used to be at a busy intersection um, in, in right, right next to a bus stop. So when we had our doors open, uh, people would come in from the street, um, especially during the food time, right? So, so we would have the service, and then we would have our food, and the people would come in during the food time. And uh, we welcomed people in. Uh, we kind of preferred, well, you know, it would be nice if you could stay, came, came for the service, but yay, we want to welcome everyone. But... Um, um, some people didn't stay, but made, kind of made platters, and then they, they left. And uh, so we, we felt a little, some kind of a way about that. You know, that's really kind of rude. Um, but then to our surprise, the next week, some of them brought their own food to contribute to the table. And uh, so we kind of had to repent of our, of our bad attitude. Um, and, um, and as we sat down, um, after everybody contributed their food, and uh, we shared, and uh, we sat down to, to eat, um, and uh, I realized that quite by accident, we had a soup kitchen, except instead of the rich serving the poor, rich and poor alike were sitting at the table as equals, bringing some, yet everyone bringing something to share with the community of God. See, I, I think that God was being gracious to us, and leading us to something that more resembled the kingdom of God. There's the second command, and this is our final, third and final point, uh, is to remember the Lord at the table. The second command that Paul gives is remember the Lord. By eating and drinking at the table, we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes. And of course, we absolutely need this. We, we can't be reconciled to each other if we don't receive God's grace in Christ. When you believe the gospel, then you realize that you are that servant who's been forgiven millions by the king but unwilling to forgive the little, the the few dollars that somebody, another servant owes you. In that story, when the king finds out, he's furious. Why wouldn't he be? It showed that the servant didn't understand, didn't get the mercy of the king. But when you know that God has been merciful to you, beyond your wildest imagination, then you are changed. On the one hand, you know that you are a sinner saved by grace, how can you continue to be proud and stubborn and winning, uh, insist on winning at all costs? On the other hand, you know that you are the beloved of God's most high. You know that the Lord paid the ultimate price so that he could have you. How can you be fearful of anything? What you have, nobody can take away. This is why the transformation of our church, our neighborhood, our city, and the world needs to be centered around Jesus and the good news of Jesus Christ. You are transformed, and you are called to each and every one of your relationships to be a source of gospel healing there. The gospel has the power to change us and also our world. This is the news that uh, the Lord's Supper declares. We taste and see how good the Lord is. We go to the table and recognize Jesus, how he gave his body and his blood so that we could become his people. And this is the basic reality, and this is what changes us. It breaks our hearts with the love of God, with the costly grace of Christ, and it sends us outward into the world as agents of God's reconciliation. It's what brings reconciliation into our relationships, into our marriage, into our neighborhood, to our schools, to our work. So when you come to communion, remember the Lord who loved you and loved the world so much that he willingly gave himself, his body, his blood, to save and to heal and to redeem and uh, to worship him. Now, um, there's a story that was written by... um, uh, a Danish author who also has roots in Kenya, like uh, and and uh, one of the neighborhoods is uh, is um, um, named after it's uh, in in Nairobi called uh, it's called Karen, um, and uh, so so she wrote this short story called the Babette's Feast, and um, uh, this is a story of a French woman named Babette, she flees a war uh, from in France and ends up in a small seaside community in Denmark. And this community is made up of strict, ascetic Lutherans who don't indulge in worldly pleasures. Uh, their meals, um, intentionally, <laughs> are boiled fish and gruel, right? Uh, because we are set apart <laughs> and uh, we will not enjoy any pleasures in this life. And uh, so, so they're very strict Lutherans. And uh, Babette's, um, Babette's spending time with, this, with them and in the, in their community. And over 12 years, Babette becomes an integral part of the community until one day, out of the blue, she receives a message from her home in Paris, and the message is that she's won the lottery. <laughs> she won ten thousand francs, which was a lot of money in those time in those in that time. So the the old sisters who were uh, who Babette's been living with, uh, they they hear this news and. Uh, and they get sad because they're expecting her to go back to Paris, um, and, um, But Babette comes to them and uh, she says, um, "I have one request: I haven't asked for any, anything of you all of these 12 years, but please, allow me to cook you a proper French banquet." And uh, the, um, the old sisters uh, don't know quite what to make of it, but of course, yes, of course, Babette, you know we, 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 of course you can." And, um, they are surprised because over the next few weeks, all sorts of exotic ingredients arrive at this little tiny village, um, from, uh, from all, it seems like all over the world. And, uh, Babette invites, uh, 12 guests to the dinner that she cooks and, um, uh, and when they enter in, they, they see that there's all kinds of fine crystals in China. And it's the most amazing, lavish meal that they have ever eaten. And um, there's even an urbane general who'd been uh, invited to, to this. And uh, he's been all over the world. But uh, he also is amazed um, as, at, uh, 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 his, at this uh, spread. And uh, so he's so moved. Uh, by this meal, that he stands up in the middle of the meal, and he gives a speech about how he is reminded of God's grace, (laughs) you know, because, and uh, how this meal reminds him of, of uh, the abundance of God's love, and um, after the meal, the old faithfuls, some of whom have been, you know, bickering with each other, also, for, for decades, Uh, and uh, some of them haven't uh, spoken to each other, Uh, they, they come outside after the meal, and they're so overjoyed that they join hands, and they spontaneously break out into old hymns of faith that they used to sing together. Inside, Babette is completely spent. It turns out that she, is a, she was once a top chef in Paris at a, a place called Café Anglais, which was a famous restaurant. The sisters thank her, and they say, we will all remember this evening when you've gone back to Paris, Babette. And Babette replies, I'm not going back. The old sisters reply, but what about the 10,000 francs? You have a life to live now. And she replies, I've spent it all on this dinner. Don't be shocked. 10,000 francs is what a proper dinner for 12 costs at the Café Anglais. The meal was a gift that cost Babette everything and nothing for those who ate. The kingdom feast costs Jesus everything and nothing for those who attend. This is the news, the good news at the heart of it all. Out of this love flows love for others and a transformed community where strangers are offered hospitality and there's no more separation between insiders and outsiders. We, church... By the community that have been formed by this message when we receive it when we take it in we start to live it out and it starts to change not only our hearts but our relationships and our communities let's practice hospitality to other sinners as the lord has also practiced hospitality towards you let's pray lord as we come to your table we remember the outpouring of love and grace towards sinners that is completely shocking. It's we we don't we can't wrap our heads around what it cost you so that you could love us. And now we're a community that has been shaped by this. Help us, Lord, as we Receive your body, receive your blood, receive the bread, receive the cup that we have been welcomed in at a huge cost, but nevertheless, because of your love that flows out towards us. And may we do likewise. May we welcome, may we uh, practice true hospitality in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ Amen